0: The Pre-PACES podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. PACES AHEAD is a fantastic four-day face-to-face PACES course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, Our other sponsor, Past Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home, and most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Paces success. But that's enough from me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pre-PACES podcast. Sam Williams here again and this week's episode is the first of another double header because it is a topic that is another PACE's favorite, rheumatoid arthritis. I knew this was a real PACE's favorite so I wanted it to be as comprehensive as possible and Dr. Ariane Laws, co-host of the Medical Take podcast and consultant rheumatologist joins me in this week's show. What a superstar guest. Ariane was just so generous with her time and also just so knowledgeable on everything rheumatoid. And I've put a link to the Medical Take podcast in the show notes. Lastly, the Buy Me A Coffee page was inundated this week from so many of you who succeeded in your paces. So a massive thank you to Daisy. Thank you to Yun. Thank you to Naime, Fiona and Dan and Niall. I'm so grateful to you all for your generosity to keep the pod running to help more people succeed in their paces. I hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, let's get into part one of our chat with Dr. Ariane Laws. Welcome to the Pre-PACES podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And today we're covering another one of the classic PACES topics. We know that this comes up time and time again in the exams and it's rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm delighted to welcome to the show another member of the medical podcasting family. I'm joined today by Dr. Ariane Laws a consultant in rheumatology and general medicine at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley near Glasgow in Scotland. She's also the host for the Medical Take podcast produced in conjunction with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow and it's very exciting to mention that the second series of this podcast has relatively recently made new episodes which have been out since the start of February. So definitely check that out. I will pop a link to the Medical Take in the show notes but Ariane welcome to the show.
1: Hello nice to be here.
0: (laughs) And Ariane let's just start off talking about the Medical Take podcast. It's something which I was aware of even before uh, inviting you to come onto this podcast. I love the first series and so I've just this morning listened to uh, the first episode of the second series so maybe you can give us a bit of background on the show and what else we can look forward to from the Medical Take.
1: So yeah, it was something that me and Daniel Liner, um, who's my co-host, had originally launched, and then Laura Gillespie came on board. We worked with the college about it. We wanted something that would wasn't sort of specifically aimed at doctors, wasn't specifically aimed at um, ANPs, that was sort of accessible to medical students as well, that covered a broad range of topics. Everything from um, we've done sort of feedback topics, how to give clinical feedback as well as dealing with big topics like chest pain. And in the new series, we've got seizures. We're going to be talking about cognitive biases in medicine, common arrhythmias, chest pain in pregnancy, and various other sort of things like that. Like the things that will tick off bits of the curriculum, but also with good experts and people who can talk about it. And interesting things as well that help sort of develop you as a clinician of whatever stripe.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And if anyone uh, who's listening now hasn't uh, checked out The Medical Take, it's available on pretty much every podcasting platform. So do just search for The Medical Take on whichever podcasting platform uh, you use. And not only will Ariane be helping us navigate the tricky topic of rheumatoid arthritis, but she will also be tackling our regular feature of Quiz the Consultant at the end of the show. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their own choosing with the caveat that it can't be related to medicine. So, Ariane, what have you named as your specialist subject?
1: My specialist subject is the sport of roller derby.
0: And if you listeners like me had no idea what roller derby is before listening to this podcast, (laughs) I strongly encourage you to go out and YouTube it right now because it is wild but more on that at the end of the show
1: pause the podcast go and listen to video come back watch a video come back
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it is absolutely wild but there will be more on that at the end of the show so without further ado let's get into rheumatoid arthritis rheumatoid arthritis is one of those PACES topics, which we know comes up time and time again. And it's got all the hallmarks of patients which are suitable for PACES. They're relatively low risk to bring in time and time again. They've got stable signs, which are unlikely to change. It's a multi-systemic condition with overlap with many differential diagnoses, which may be implicated. And overall, it's relatively common. So if we can start off, How might rheumatoid arthritis be presented in a Paces style scenario?
1: Yeah, so you're right. It is an absolute chestnut of the exam. Easy patients to bring in. So whether that is as somebody who you know you're presenting with somebody presenting with new joint pain in and out, patients setting onto a general medical type clinic or. If it's somebody they're saying is known to have rheumatoid arthritis and is on treatment who maybe is having problems with that treatment or something else. So whether you're trying to figure out what the differential is or actually you're given what they've got and you've got to sort of look for complications of disease or treatment. And also one of the things that I've heard when people are trying to pick patients is actually knowing whether somebody has active synovitis or not is another thing so being able to assess disease activity.
0: Yeah fantastic and I think the other thing which comes with this is that the the slickness of your examination and the systematic approach to the full assessment the comprehensive assessment of a patient with rheumatoid is just something which examiners will be looking for you to execute in this station and it's really important this is a a really common station so it's something our listeners will have to dial into absolutely precisely so we've talked about how it might be presented so and the thing I should add in as well it's probably most likely to be what we are now calling a station five but by the end of 2023 will probably be one of our brief clinical consultations you may find signs elsewhere I'm thinking mainly the respiratory examination station, if you find a patient with interstitial lung disease. But focusing on rheumatoid as a whole condition, you're most likely to find it in those comprehensive assessments, the station fives, or if you're listening after the introduction of the new PACES format, the longer consultation stations. So we're going to approach this, Ariane, as a patient presenting with painful hands, which may well be the lead-in that you're given uh, in a... uh, In a comprehensive assessment style scenario, a consultation type scenario. So how do you approach a patient presenting with painful hands in the first instance when you're taking a history? What are the what are the typical questions that our listeners should certainly ask about?
1: Yeah, so I guess you're sort of leading in with an open question um around about why it is that they're there or, you know, I hear you've got sore joints, tell me a bit about that and let them do a bit of the talking about, you know. They'll have a script of what it is that they're meant to cover. So they'll give you however much of that script they decide to give you at that point. Then when you're sort of focusing in to try and sort of tease out: is this inflammatory, is this not inflammatory, what are they getting at here? You're wanting to find out how long have they had symptoms for, what time of day those symptoms might be worse at, getting at sort of early morning stiffness they wake up and sort of takes them half an hour to get going at all which joints is it that it's been affecting like is it the classic small joint symmetrical polyarthritis or is it just one knee you know the sort of large joint oligoarthritis type picture but you can get single joint presentations of rheumatoid and I've seen it happen before but usually it is that and particularly if it's somebody picked to be in an exam we're going to be going for this small joint symmetrical polyarthritis. Have the hands changed in appearance? Like do they actually look different? Because often people, you know, people will say the hands are swollen and actually... It wouldn't be the first time that in a clinic setting, I've had somebody, and it, it's actually carpal tunnel syndrome, and it's numbness they're describing. It. It's that like fat lip when you've been to the dentist and you've had local anaesthetic put in. It's actually the sensation of swelling as opposed to actual swelling. Any appearance of nodules and things, obviously, in a clinic setting, again, you'd hope to present prior to having developed nodules. And actually, really crucially, you know, taking the patient as a whole, asking about effect on work and function. You know, do they live alone? Have they been completely unable to fasten a bra for the last however long? Have they not had a cup of tea for three weeks because they can't lift a kettle full of water? Things like that and actually around work as well because that clinically is really important because half of our patients at two years, even as good as we are at treating rheumatoid now, aren't in work. So actually knowing what they do and trying to target that early in the consultation is important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And really important as well as asking about function is also asking about work. And often I have found that's the thing which they're most concerned about. And they'll often have a job which requires manual dexterity. They'll often be a seamstress or uh, a secretary that needs to type or something like that. So always worth uh, specifically trying to elicit those concerns. And then as we've approached our history, focusing on the joint pain, we'll need to think about the multi-systemic effect of rheumatoid and the extra-articular manifestations of rheumatoid once we've established the the history of, of joint pain. So what are the types of uh, associated symptoms which patients can report in a patient presenting with joint pain, which might make you think, is this an extra-articular manifestation of rheumatoid or actually is this pointing away from rheumatoid and maybe at one of our differential diagnoses?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, as part of your examination later on, you'll be looking for this as well, but I do always ask them, do they have psoriasis? Is there a first degree relative with psoriasis as well? Or have they noticed like a flaky scalp? Because it wouldn't be the first patient who hasn't been aware that actually they had psoriasis, but they've just always had this funny rash on their forehead. Have there been any changes in bowel habit to suggest something like an inflammatory bowel disease associated with enteropathic arthritis? Have there been any eye symptoms suggestive of anterior uveitis? Or I guess the other thing would be much less commonly seen now, but scleritis, so painful, acutely painful, usually just one eye. Have they had any breathlessness? Again, usually a sort of later sign. You talked about sort of interstitial lung disease. Have they had a dry cough? Have they been tired? Are they more breathless? And yeah, the sort of, um, the can't see, can't pee and can't climb a tree of reactive arthritis. Like, have they got joint pain associated with dysuria and um, again, anterior uveitis? Or, not the first time I've seen somebody with polyarticular gout presenting as um, rheumatoid, and whether or not, you know, have you got a history of gout? Have they got these sort of funny lumps that have appeared over the sort of usually extensive surfaces, tops of ears that are tofi kind of thing? So, people sometimes have. Even say, yeah, no, I've got this lump on my finger here that just started oozing this creamy coloured weird stuff coming out of it. And actually, like, if they say that, then you're thinking that's a tophus that's burst kind of thing. So that would be the sort of kind of things I'd be asking to tease out the sort of other bits as well as a sort of family history, just in case.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And just going back briefly to the distribution of symptoms and, and joints affected, how does the uh, variability of joint distribution narrow down into where you're thinking of in terms of a dis- differential diagnosis? Because I think there is a a typical presentation of these conditions and I know it's we're trying to make a a grey picture into black and white and it doesn't always present that way but there are typical presentations of these various uh, arthritis so I wonder if you can just talk us through how these psoriatic arthritis patients or these enteropathic uh, arthritis patients uh, how they typically present.
1: Yeah so um, I've already said that rheumatoid arthritis and particularly patients that you'll see in exams It's likely to be a small joint symmetrical polyarthritis, particularly in the hands affecting the MCP and PIP joints. Psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis is a great mimic. So it can look like seven different things. So sometimes you have patients who do have a symmetrical small joint polyarthritis, but actually often the thing that will help you differentiate is that it's affecting the DIP joints more so than the PIP joints, but also the MCP joints and it can be symmetrical like that. You can get the sort of obliterans sort of appearance where people are getting telescoping of fingers very quickly, early onset. Sometimes patients with psoriatic arthritis present with a monoarthritis, so often a large joint like a knee or an ankle. Um, and the other thing is the sort of sym- um, asymmetrical um, larger joint oligoarthritis and that's kind of what the sort of seronegative arthritis will present as is the sort of either monoarthritis or asymmetrical um, oligoarthritis in larger joints usually.
0: Yeah fantastic and I, and I guess the important thing for our listeners and I tried to allude to it before is that there is a typical presentation but not everything presents typically. So it's important to have an open mind and always consider that not everything presents typically, but there are characteristic presenting patterns and it's important to try and clearly differentiate. And that will at least demonstrate to your examiner that you have a knowledge of how these uh, seronegative arthritides present. And so if we talk about extending the history into our uh, systematic approach that we always take when we see any sort of patient, there are other parts of the history that you briefly mentioned talking about the family history you mentioned about asking about first degree relatives with inflammatory conditions and uh i guess is there anything else you, that's pertinent to ask about in the extended parts? so the family history the drug history or the social history for these patients
1: yeah. So um, thinking about any other associated autoimmune conditions that family members might have, um, you know, because you can get inflammatory arthritis with lupus and things as well. Like it's not the first person that it turns out they have lupus instead. Any other inflammatory arthritis, particularly if, every, if it's a female patient you've got in front of you and every other woman for the last four generations has developed rheumatoid arthritis, you want to know a bit about the history of that. Patients will often... Have tried other things, like tried analgesia and things to try and help the symptoms before they present to the clinic. So, what have they done to try and improve their symptoms? I'm specifically referencing drugs, so whether they've been taking anti-inflammatories, whether the GP has given them a course of steroids in advance, you know, even if they've tried sort of treating it themselves by you'll often. Patients will say that they try in the morning, they'll run a sink of warm water and put their hands in it to try and ease off the sort of early morning stiffness. Cool packs as well, they'll often have tried to help with symptoms in advance of attending clinic. So always ask about that. And when we get onto the social history, you're asking about alcohol, partly to do with effects of treatment and impacts on treatment. Also, if we're sort of thinking gout, obviously it's not the only driver of gout, but if we're thinking about differential diagnosis, Smoking, particularly in rheumatoid arthritis, because of the association with um, citrullination of proteins within the lungs and therefore anti-CCP antibodies, which are probably directly um, pathogenic in the synovium. So actually, if somebody is from a family with a genetic predisposition to rheumatoid arthritis and they smoke, they're much more likely to go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis, so I'd always ask about that. And we alluded to function before, whether or not that's to do with their work or to do with their sort of hobbies and things like that, you know, people aren't just their jobs. Usually in a sort of station five or the clinical consultation that it's going to become, there'll be something that they've, a concern that they have in amongst something like that that you'll want to make sure you pick up on during the consultation
0: yeah absolutely there's always one thing which the patient is most concerned about and you'll be expected to try and elicit that not just elicit it but you're expected to address it and address their concerns and I have heard before examiners of marking candidates down on the basis that they've elicited the concern but they haven't actually addressed it they said oh so you think you're going to lose your job anyway (laughs) talking about your family history
1: yeah yeah. tell me about your auntie Mabel with the sore joints again (laughs)
0: So if we change tack, Ariane, just slightly, we've discussed our uh, approach to history taking for a new patient who's presented with joint pain, maybe for the first time, we're going to change tack slightly to a patient with known rheumatoid arthritis. And maybe they're presenting with an extra articular manifestation of rheumatoid. And we've already alluded to um, several of these uh, through our discussion so far, but it's important to think about how these might crop up. And so What other possible presentations or what possible symptoms might someone with rheumatoid complain of if it's not joint pain? What might they present with?
1: Yeah, so obviously the big one which I have mentioned is interstitial lung disease. So the patient referred from the respiratory clinic, not the first time a patient's come to us having had a nodule biopsied and it turns out to be a rheumatoid nodule in the lung and that's how the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis is made. But whether they present breathless, if when you get onto examining them, they've got bibasal fine crepes of fibrosis. Evidence of pleural effusions. They may have eye symptoms. I mentioned scleritis and the pain of scleritis and the potential for sort of globe rupture with that. Fingers crossed again. Much less common now than it used to be with the sort of more modern treatments, but still something you want to want to watch out for. The dry eyes of sort of secondary Sjogren syndrome and side effects of some of the medications. Sometimes people will be on things like amitriptyline for pain already which can lead to sort of dry eyes, dry mouth and that sort of thing as well. Again, I've done really well at ticking uh, ticking off the things that I was thinking about talking about here. Carpal tunnel syndrome. If somebody has wrist involvement and they've got synovitis at the wrist, which has caused compression, they may um, complain of sort of numbness. Classically in the um, radial three digits, but not everybody's nerves have read the textbooks. Um, so any sort of tingling and numbness in hands I might... Think about what I'm going to do later on in terms of examination to look at that and try and remember to do that. So i not, again, if the concern is that they've got numb hands, you want to remember to pick that back up. There's lots of other stuff around, have they, have they actually come in more with neck pain? If this is somebody who's sort of known to have established disease and they're telling you that they turn their head and they get shooting pains and sort of odd sensations down their arms. That's a big red flag that you want to look at. You don't want them to have walked out of the clinic room or the uh, you don't want to have walked out of the exam room and go, oh, yeah, I should probably have asked more about that. <laughs> There's various sort of hematological things that can happen. The biggest one is obviously anaemia of chronic disease. So are they just knackered all of the time? Do they look incredibly pasty? Like... Again, presentations that I have seen in rheumatology clinics, the presentation with pericarditis and a big um, sort of three litre pericardial effusion. I got the cardiologist to deal with that first before I considered demod therapy. I felt like I was out of my depth with the big needle. But yeah, have they got any features of that? I mean, it's unlikely that you're going to see somebody who actually has this in your station five but if it may be something that's given as part of the history as something that's sort of happened before you know you're not going to have somebody who's got a jvp up to their ears that isn't going down but it's something to ask about and as well the renal involvement things like um nephrotic syndrome have they had frothy urine and stuff like that
0: yeah absolutely fantastic so in the uh, station five trying to ask all these questions is going to be rapid fire for your patient. And uh, I'm sure that they will understand, you know, these are often patients that are well-versed in the paces uh, setup, So they will know that they're probably going to get a lot of questions, but I guess the important thing as well is just tailor it to the presenting symptom of your patient. And it may not be necessary to ask about all of these all the time, but maybe asking about two or three of them will just demonstrate to the examiner that you have an understanding this is a multi-systemic condition with extra articular manifestations which may be uh, unusual to see in in other conditions which are not multi-systemic
1: yeah absolutely focus on whatever your little bit of paper before the um, exam set so if it is breathlessness you probably don't want to go into too much detail about whether their hands are tingly or they've got a sore neck but tailor it to your patient always
0: yeah definitely and We're just going to hover on one particular possible uh, presentation, Ariane, which is one that we've already discussed, which is exertional breathlessness and fatigue. We've already discussed a couple of possible differential diagnoses uh, for this, but we're just going to linger on this just because this, at least in... From anecdotal uh, reports is a really common one a rheumatoid patient with established uh, diagnosis presents with breathlessness and fatigue so I wonder if we can just list off a few of the possible uh, situations or possible diagnoses or explanations for why a patient with rheumatoid arthritis may present with breathlessness and fatigue
1: yeah, so um, pulmonary fibrosis would be the big one that I sort of mentioned first the last time. Whether that is secondary to the disease itself, so particularly if it's a patient who is um, zero positive, um, they are more likely to get extra articular manifestations. Also the thing we warn people about when starting methotrexate, methotrexate pneumonitis and scarring from that usually happens within their first year of treatments. So you're wanting to ask this patient in your consultation How long have you been on the methotrexate for? When did this breathlessness start? And sort of have a think about what investigations you're going to suggest in the next sort of part of the exam if they are on the methotrexate. Anemia we mentioned as well as various different uh, sort of reasons that could happen, particularly anemia of chronic disease would be the sort of big one, um, but maybe treatment related as well, particularly if they've been on anti-inflammatories, and they've been getting lots of indigestion they've maybe not been on a PPI or not been taking it or are just prone to sort of ulcerative disease
0: yeah fantastic and then the next thing which well, what I was going to discuss is being aware of, of systemic symptoms such as uh, fever, weight loss, fatigue, which could also um, crop up in in various guises in a rheumatoid patient. So what might the sort of explanations be, or what should our listeners have their uh, ears pricked up for as a, as an explanation of of these sort of systemic constitutional symptoms?
1: Yeah, so the big one, particularly in people who have active rheumatoid arthritis, that you have the same risk, it's about a 20% increased risk of infection in a patient with active rheumatoid arthritis compared to somebody who doesn't have active rheumatoid arthritis as being on methotrexate sort of DMARD therapy. So you're looking for symptoms of infection, which could be due to myelosuppression because of disease or because of pancytopenia because of drugs as well, if this is a patient with established um, rheumatoid. PACE's classic Felty Syndrome, um, which is your know, patient with rheumatoid arthritis who has splenomegaly and neutropenia and again more prone to infections and you want, you know, you're not going to examine the abdomen of every single rheumatoid patient that you see in PACES, but if this is part of it, I'd at least offer to do that. And if it's if you're sort of barking up the wrong tree, the examiners will tell you you don't need to sort of go uh, exposing the patient like that and yeah literally any other thing that gives you fever weight loss and fatigue um cancer subclinical infection a different diagnosis that's cropped up in the background you know
0: and i think that's where it becomes really difficult because patients with rheumatoid can get covid they can have cancer they can have viral infections and that's where it becomes really difficult in paces because you don't know whether or not they're looking for something which is related to their rheumatoid, whether you're barking up the wrong tree, whether it's a red herring. So always just be open-minded as to whether or not this is actually related to their rheumatoid, or actually is this a, a, a distinct pathology entirely.
1: Oh, and I should say as well, obviously, the risk of lymphoma with either treatment, but particularly with just rheumatoid arthritis itself, there is an increased risk of that. So Yeah, if you've got somebody with fever, weight loss, and particularly if they've got sweats, you want to be um, sort of getting stuck into that in your history here.
0: Yeah, excellent. And uh, Ariane, one thing you mentioned earlier on is, is about symptoms which may be suggestive of active disease. I don't know whether or not you think this might be better suited in the examination, which we're going to come on to next, or whether or not we can discuss it now as part of their history. But maybe a bridge between the two might be a good opportunity to discuss how you would assess a patient for active disease.
1: Yeah, yeah. so a lot of it is obviously like what their joints actually look like, which we'll sort of go on to. But It's one of the things I always teach the medical students when we're talking about how to tell the difference between osteoarthritis, degenerative disease and inflammatory disease. There's that bit in the history that we talked about, about early morning stiffness. So everybody as they get older can feel a bit stiff in the mornings. And I'm not saying that people with osteoarthritis don't have stiffness, but rheumatoid patients will often say you know at least half an hour if not 45 minutes of just not really being able to get going yet people sometimes have it for hours and you'll have patients Um, who are getting up at six o'clock in the morning to get to a nine o'clock appointment to actually just be able to physically dress themselves and get their breakfast and get out to the car and get to their appointment kind of thing so that's the kind of big thing on the history that always makes me suspicious and inactivity gelling so they've got themselves up and going they've got their appointment and then you're running half an hour late and they sit there for half an hour and they get up out of this 30-year-old patient gets up out of the chair like uh, somebody's nan because you've had them sitting there for too long. So yeah, lots about that. Loss of function. You know, most people who have a bit of osteoarthritis, it might be sore, but usually can get about their day and do things. But, you know, you'll have people who have changed to shoes that don't have laces on and have stopped wearing stuff with buttons on. I started wearing like bralettes and things like that or front fastening bras and things like that as well to get around the function that they've lost um and also the acute onset people with osteoarthritis still have had aches and pains on and off for years it might have ac- it might have hit an accelerated phase but it's not usually like night and day you know today compared to three months ago that's what you're kind of looking for mostly
0: yeah fantastic and so if we move on now to the examination of our patients now You've already probably taken a fantastic history, noting a lot of the things that we've been talking about, but the examination and the slickness of your examination is a real opportunity to uh, demonstrate your understanding of assessing these patients in a slick, effective, thorough, comprehensive manner. And so starting off, The most important thing is just to ensure that the patient is comfortable. Ideally in this sort of station, there should be a pillow in the room for the patient to rest their hands on. And the first thing always with any type of examination, ensure you've got them exposed suitably, rolling up their sleeves, exposing their hands, wrists, elbows, if possible, but really hands and wrists in a in a joint examination is going to be absolutely critical. And so, um, Ariane when we come to uh, examining the hands and this is obviously more suited to the first scenario we talked about a patient presenting for the first time with new small joint polyarthropathy what are the types of things which the the candidates absolutely have to cover during their examination of these patients?
1: You're right this is one of the things particularly with painful conditions I'd always ask is there a particular joint that's sore at the moment before I went and sort of laid hands on both clinically and for the exam so they know that you're thinking about it from the end of the bed you might notice um some deformities if it's the sort of second case where somebody's had established disease but you're looking to see are there hot swollen joints do they have obvious nodules is there the rash of psoriasis and actually, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree with rheumatoid arthritis here. Do they have any nail changes, particularly of um, of psoriasis, whether that's on a colitis, pitting, all of uh, sort of ridging and things like that as well that you might be looking for in the hands. So... I always find when you think about what joints you're going to examine for this, I always think it's good to go to the the disease act. So it's called the DAS twenty eight score, which is what we tend to use in clinic. It helps us decide sort of treatment escalation and treatment response. But the forms all have the wee picture of the wee guy with his uh like sir, joint circles to mark which joints are sore and which joints are tender, and I always think that's a good way of remembering which joints it is that. A, it commonly affects, and B, you want to be having a look at in the exam. So you're wanting to look for any ulnar deviation at the MCP joints, the classic finger deformities of the swan-necking, boutonniere deformity, Z-thumbs, I sort of mentioned rheumatoid nodules, where are you going to see those? You tend to see them across the, the sort of extensor surfaces, usually of the fingers, at the elbows as well. And usually they would have the patient exposed enough that they can, you can sort of see their elbows because you want to be able to look for TOFI as well. That's another classic place to see nodules as well, psoriatic rashes and things like that. We talked about carpal tunnel syndrome. Is there muscle wasting in the palms of the hands? You know, do they have um, wasting of the fener eminences? Your established patient, have they got those really neat little um, plastic surgery scars of joint replacements in the hands as well? And I guess when we're talking about stuff that can give you sort of changes in the hands, whether there's thickening of the skin, the sort of tight, shiny skin of um, systemic sclerosis as well would be the sort of other thing on inspection that
0: you're sort of looking for yeah fantastic and i just wanted to um linger on on a couple of things which we mentioned there particularly the deformities because i think the examiners will expect you to be able to name the specific deformity and describe it uh, and so i just thought thinking of our uh, listeners who may be commuting or not able to picture that in their mind so the swan necking deformity is when you've got the hyperextended proximal interphalangeal joint and then you've got the fixed flexion of the distal interphalangeal joint and the uh, the boutonniere deformity is the opposite of that so you've got a fixed flexion of the proximal interphalangeal joint and then you've got the hyperextended distal interphalangeal joint and the ulnar deviation is at the level of the MCPs as Ariane mentioned and obviously that's heading medially towards the ulna when you're in the anatomical position. As usual, just a quick nod over to our podcast partner, pasttest.com. Of course, Past Test Paces revision resource has videos directly related to rheumatoid arthritis, which should perfectly complement this episode of the podcast when you come to revise this common Paces topic. So to get access, just click the link labelled Past Test in the show notes. So, once you have inspected and hopefully noticed some of the abnormalities you've found, you've palpated the individual joints looking for tenderness, how would we perform a functional assessment for our patients?
1: Yeah, so... What I would usually do in a clinic setting and what I would expect people to do in an exam, first I would get them to make a fist without my finger there so I can actually see that they can actually fold all of their fingers in and that you don't end up with one sticking out because if your finger's there, you might just think that actually they can make a fist but your finger's in the way and the, their hand isn't fully flexed and you're masking that by having your hand in the way. So I'd get them to do that first and make sure everything folds in like you'd expect it to. Then I would assess their power by getting them to squeeze my fingers. Then I sort of think about their sort of fine grip. So that's the thing that makes people struggle with buttons and holding pens and things like that. So I'll get them to, for a start, I'll test the strength and get them to do like a ring with their index finger and their thumb. And then I'll put my index finger and thumb through that and get them to not let me get my fingers out of there. So and then literally either have a pen on you or if there's a pen around or if they've got buttons on what they're wearing see if get them to like try and undo it in my cases exam I did actually get a patient with rheumatoid arthritis and she had a really fancy brooch on her uh, top and I tried to get I got her to try and do that to try and unfasten that but there'll always be something or you can at least offer that if you've forgotten your pen that day and um they'll say yes or no if, if, you know, if one of your examiners has a pen instead, just to make sure that you're making it clear that that's something that you'd want to assess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then moving on from your functional assessment, more or less, that's all you'd expect if you've got uh, the small joint polyarthropathy. We're, unfortunately, we're not going to cover the functional assessment of the larger joints because we're focusing on rheumatoid here today. But it's still important to think about what we mentioned earlier with regard to extra articular findings. And Ariane, you already mentioned checking the elbows for psoriasis and feeling along the arm for rheumatoid nodules. You talked about psoriasis in the ears and in the scalp, which would uh, be the typical places to find those types of rashes. And also including things we discussed earlier, such as um, eye signs, looking for redness for evidence of uveitis or scleritis or even the conjunctival pallor associated with anemia, as we discussed earlier as well, briefly listening to the lung fields would just demonstrate that you have an understanding that pulmonary fibrosis can be associated with rheumatoid as well. And showing that you're able to do this relatively quickly shows that you have an understanding of the multisystemic nature of rheumatoid. So, once you get to the end of your examination, you'll be expected to present the patient back with your findings, followed by some common questions. And so when we come to present our patients back to the examiner, Ariane, we've already mentioned a number of the different uh, differential diagnoses that our listeners should be listing off and Importantly, I think they should be able to justify why uh, they might think it's rheumatoid or an alternative differential diagnosis based on their history. So maybe if you can just run through, again, a lot of the things we've already mentioned already, but what should be sort of top of your list in terms of your differential diagnosis when it comes to um, discussing these patients with the examiner?
1: We've already talked about rheumatoid arthritis and how that's a sort of small joint symmetrical polyarthritis, particularly affecting the MCP and PIP joints. So if that's the sort of um, distribution of what you found when examining the patient, that's what you want to be saying as number one, I think this is most likely to be this because of the distribution or any other sort of extra articular findings you find. When it comes on to sort of listing the seronegative um, arthritis, we're thinking psoriatic arthritis instead of the PIP in the MCP, we're talking the DIP joints and the MCP joints. Usually associated nail changes, there might be some dactylitis. Add into that sort of similar picture, enteropathic arthritis, IBD-associated arthritis, any sort of gut symptoms, mouth ulcers, usually a large joint, oligoarthritis or a monoarthritis, depending, plus or minus back pain similar to reactive arthritis, where you may have some eye signs, some dysuria, some discharge. Important to note, the majority of patients with a sexually transmitted infection won't necessarily actually have any symptoms now or ever. And I tell everybody in clinic just to go to your local sexual health centre and just get a screen no matter how much you think you don't or you don't think your partners don't have something, just go and get it checked. That's my uh, rant over. I'll, move, I'll talk more about it. I'm closing spondylitis now. Do you know, we're just so bad at asking people sexual histories in clinic, and we probably don't have time for it. It's just easier just to get people to actually go and get it checked out because there might be nothing on history. And closing spondylitis, with sort of thinking about that associated back pain, with those sort of features of inflammation, that early morning stiffness for half an hour, Symptoms of sacraliitis of that sort of slowly alternating buttock pain um, and particularly um, not just low back pain, particularly if somebody in their 30s has pain further up, sort of thoracic back pain, you'd be sort of listing that. Crystal arthritis, if it's somebody's big toe that's sore as they're presenting complaint in your exam and they're covered in toe effects, probably gout, um, and you want to say that's why you think it's that it may be pseudogout, and that's classically the wee old lady who's fallen over and injured a wrist, hasn't broken it, but that does seem to trigger a flare of... We used to call it pseudogout. It's more often being referred to as calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease now, I think, because people used to get a bit confused. So you say, I don't have gout. It's pseudogout. Right, so thinking about lifestyle, so if you've asked them in your social history about drinking and they're telling you that they drink you know bottle of wine a day you're probably going to put that higher up your list of differential to the examiners and I talked a bit about what I think are inflammatory features but if you've got somebody who has lots of bony nodules that are inhibited and bush and bushards nodes and none of those inflammatory features then it probably is hand osteoarthritis and again family history is important there because Certain families are predisposed to developing changes earlier and developing sort of more overt, dramatic hand changes than others, because it's not everybody in their sort of 50s and 60s who has really florid Heberdans and Bouchard's nodes. But some people get them in their sort of 50s, 40s and things like that. And you'll often find there's other family members that develop changes sooner as well
0: yeah so really important guys just to wrap your head around all these typical presentations and and listing these off to your examiner will just give them the confidence that you you know what you're talking about when it comes to the differential diagnosis of a patient presenting with joint disease So that brings us to the end of part one of our chat with Dr. Ariane Laws on rheumatoid arthritis. But look out for part two where we comprehensively cover the investigations, management, common examiner questions and most importantly, a quiz the consultant topic not to be missed, Ariane's topic of roller derby. Don't forget to please, please give us a five star rating on your podcast platform of choice. Get in touch with us via our Twitter, via the email or by the website. And of course, if you love the show and want to directly support us, it's buymeacoffee.com slash PrePaces Podcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. I've been Dr. Sam Williams. We'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.